Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, January the 3rd, 2023. It is currently 4.08 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And once again, and hopefully for the final time, Maybe, maybe the final time. I hope it's the final time. We bring the series Practice the Presence of God to a very <laughs> anticlimactic conclusion. There's this is not going to be a dramatic conclusion. There's nothing going to be it's going to be kind of disappointing. This is going to kind of just end with a a whimper in a sense. It's just going to kind of just I think by the time I'm done talking today, you're going to be like, wait, you wasted a lot of your time on that series. I hope you don't feel that way, but 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 it, it's going to feel like that. This is just going to be anticlimactic. There's not going to be anything dramatic. This is not going to be like, wow, what a conclusion. That was amazing. That This is just going to be like, that. That's that's how it ends, but that's how it ends. This is going to be one of those situations where you walk away from a podcast series going, well... The ending was garbage, okay, and uh, I, I apologize, but I'm going to do my very best to try to make this beneficial in some way, shape, or form. I, I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted today. If you listen to the last live bro- uh, broadcast, which was, wow, what in, what in the world happened there? What, what in the name of bubblegum occurred? I do not know. Uh, you can go find the message, Jess, Jesse DePlantis and Heresy, that or Jesse DePlantis Heresy. It was, that was... I I am still just utterly dumbfounded and baffled by what we heard. But here's what starts happening to me, all right? In this series, we're going through an article, right, about the presence of Christ, the presence of God, and what can hinder it. And obviously, we're disagreeing with every single point. So I'm here kind of saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Obviously, in the Jesse DePlantis sermon, where he utterly uh, blasphemed, I mean, it, it was full-blown blasphemy the way he handled Isaiah 9-6. It was, it was startling. It was scary. We were obviously disagreeing. So I sometimes I feel like I fall into kind of a, I don't want to fall into a rut where it's just like, oh, I disagree with this, I disagree with this, I disagree with this. You also want to do positive teaching. So we'll, we'll need to find some some things that we can do to um, to do more to instead of just exposing what we disagree with, saying something something in a much more building, um, encouraging, um, building up way, right? A, a something that would be better off than just saying what we disagree with and what. And typically, the Bible study exercise does a lot of like, here's this passage of scripture. Let's work on it. I thought the Matthew fourteen. Uh, part of the of our study on the subject of fear was much more encouraging because we were trying to figure out the text. So I thought that worked out pretty good. We had that weird sermon review in the middle of it that kind of destroyed the positive nature of it, but I tried to end it on a positive nature. Well, then we went to Zephaniah chapter 3. I think it's Zephaniah chapter 3. Let me look here. I don't want to give you uh, wrong information. I'm almost positive it's Zephaniah chapter 3 because I think there's only three chapters in Zephaniah. I could, I could be wrong. There's only, yeah, there's only three. Zephaniah chapter three. Um, and that kind of turned negative because we were using the curriculum, which completely 
just handled it in an incorrect way. So I just feel right now this, like, I feel like a burden and a weight. I almost feel guilty because I don't want this just to turn into, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I also want to balance it out by saying, open up your Bibles, let's dig into the text and let's figure this out and try to understand this in a correct way. Because again, you can't just spend your life saying that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You have to have the encouraging, the exhortation, the building up and the positive teaching of scripture. When I say positive teaching, meaning just learning the scriptures and and understanding what they mean and then seeking to apply them in a correct way, not just simply using them to say that something else is wrong. But at the same time, Learning discernment and exposing that which is false is also important. So I try to have a good balance here on the podcast. And right now I just feel the scale is tipped one way and I'm I'm struggling to get it back. But at the same time, I know I have to finish this series. And this series, I I, I really thought, I'm just going to be honest with you, when this series kind of started, I really thought... If you, if you go all the way back to when this started on the Today's Focus podcast series with the Adrian Rogers uh, message, I really thought that this was going to get us into a great study of uh, in a part of Exodus. But it turned into not being able to have so much a positive study of Exodus because the sermon just obliterated the text so badly, we weren't really able to deal with the text in a positive way. And then the next thing you know, we have this article And then I thought it would maybe add to the discussion, but it became a negative thing as well. So just so that you know, I'm very aware right now that the scale is not balanced. And I'm going to find a way to get it balanced in some way, shape, or form. It may take a little while, but just stay with me because I don't want you to feel like, well, all he's doing is complaining about everything else. I, I will. I am very aware of the need for a proper balance because I don't want this just to turn into one of those podcasts. Uh, I, I, that just, this is wrong. 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 But also some, some things where we can open up the word of God and have a more positive approach, if that makes sense. So let's review. All right. On what day was it? Do I have the date? On November the 25th, 2022, the Christian post posted an article entitled five things that hinder the presence of Christ. And between this and this article and between what we listened to from Pastor Adrian, Adrian Rogers and some other things we put together, we were, I think we are able to determine, and I think that I think I can be dogmatic about this, that within the evangelical world, within the Christian church at large, there is a teaching and a and about, there is a teaching about the presence of God, the presence of Christ in your life and in my life and inside the church that basically says there are different types of God's presence. I guess that's the best way to describe it. And they would say that these, the, the presence of Christ, the presence of God really shows up in the following ways. And I wrote these down yesterday and I'm going to repeat them because I want you to have them down. Because whenever you're listening to preaching or teaching, you can go, oh, they're referencing to that kind of presence of God. Oh, they're referencing that kind of presence of God. And because I think that this is very pre- prevalent inside the evangelical church, whether anybody wants to talk about this or not. We, never, we didn't set out to expose this, 
but we kind of discovered this by working through all of these different things that we've been looking at. But here we go. I think this is very evident, very prevalent and very evident in many churches across the United States of America and probably around the world, but I only know the church in America in, in any meaningful way, so I'm not going to speak for churches outside of the United States. But here we go. It is commonly taught, I believe, that God's presence really can be understood in the following ways. Number one, his omnipresence. His omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times, right? His omnipresence. Number two, his special presence. When we mean special presence is we have in the Bible records of God, in a sense, manifesting himself in a special way for a specific time or a specific purpose. The Shekinah glory and the tabernacle, the temple, different things like that. We, 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 we can acknowledge that. Number three, his internal presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, God, in a sense, is present, present inside of you. His presence is inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's indwelling you, all right? Omnipresence, special presence, and his internal presence or his indwelling presence. Now, those are basically the three ideas that I was taught, and I think most of the Bible colleges I attended and most of the seminaries I attended, I think that was kind of the general break. When we think of God's presence, we have his omnipresence, we have his special presence, and we have his internal or indwelling presence in the person of the Holy Spirit inside of every believer. All right, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. But what we discovered is that there's a fourth one that is often referred to by many Christians in many churches. And I don't know if they would even, I don't know if they even understand that they're putting forth the idea of a fourth way that God is present. I don't know if they would ever, I don't know if they would even acknowledge this as a fourth category, but it's clearly a fourth category, especially uh, this article that we've been working through from the Christian Post. They basically call this fourth one, the surrendered presence or the extra presence. And now here's the way it works. God is omnipresent. He may manifest himself in a special way at specific times for a specific purpose. Yes, he is indwelling every believer. That's wonderful and that's great. But to really take your Christian life to the next level, to really kick it up a notch, you need this extra presence, this surrendered presence. And we call it a surrendered presence because you only get this extra presence when you completely and absolutely surrender yourself to God. When you do that, you get this extra presence, and with that comes power and comes understanding and comes all of these things that the other way God is present doesn't count. His omnipresence doesn't produce this, his special presence and his indwelling presence. No, this is something different. This is, a, this is taking your Christian life to the next level. And I, and I think many Christians, whether they acknowledge this or not, are speaking about this one because this fourth one, it appears, is very fragile. It's like, it's there, but it can be, it can go away just like that. Like this, this surrendered presence, this extra presence. It's there, but just the wrong action, just the wrong. If you mess up in, it seems, any way, shape, or form, boom, the extra presence go away, and you're just right back down to the normal level of his indwelling presence. It, it, it's fascinating to watch. So let me remind you just at the beginning of this article, what we read 
This was entitled, Five Things That Hinder the Presence of Christ. See, something can hinder this. Something can hinder. And what's what's being hindered is the surrendered presence or the, or the uh, extra presence. It says most believers understand that God is everywhere, but the Bible also, but the Bible is also clear that the power and presence of Christ can fill the heart of the believers who completely surrenders to him. You see why I have to put this in a different category? See, this presence is only for those who completely surrender. You don't completely surrender. You don't get this presence. So this is clearly beyond the indwelling presence, and clearly this is beyond the omnipresence. So this is that presence that everyone should be striving for, but it requires absolute surrender. And anything that impacts that absolute surrender, you lose this presence. And then you go back just to living the normal, unproductive, unfruitful, I guess, weak kind of Christian life, which... It's just crazy. But they go on to say, his presence changes everything. Now, what presence changes everything? This extra presence changed everything. So it's no secret why the enemy of our souls want to hinder his presence and the power in our life. And here are the five things that will hinder the presence. So they go through and give us five things that will hinder the presence. Now, I'm going to do something that I have not done in any of the other episodes, and I want you to pay close attention to this. All right. Within, and and I want you to hear kind of my thesis, and I'm going to use this to kind of support my thesis. Within the evangelical church, and within the minds of Christians all across the United States of America, there are certain ideas, certain theses, certain perspectives, certain concepts that just kind of enter into the mind and into the DNA of certain streams of Christianity and everyone just accepts it. We begin to use that language. We begin to talk about it. And whether we realize it or not, it just, it becomes this kind of concept. I'm going to use this phrase. It kind of becomes a tradition and it, in many cases, is not founded or based on God's word in any way, shape, or form. And in many cases, God's word is not even really that much connected to it. Oh, someone may quote one verse here or one verse there, but for the most part, it's almost an, well, it's a, it's a tradition that's outside of the word of God. Now, if you try to point this out to Christians, they will get mad and get upset, but you're like, well, where did you come up with that idea? Where did you come up with that idea? Like some Christians will say, well, if someone is a pastor and they commit this sin, they're excommunicated, they're they're done forever. Where did you get the idea that they're done forever? Where, where, where? Like, where, what's scripture? Well, if you're a Christian, you can't do this. Are you, where did you get that idea? Now they may try to quote a scripture and make it work, but in many cases, the Bible doesn't even actually say the things that Christians are saying. But it just kind of is so enters in, it becomes a part of the tradition. Well, here they're just kind of speaking like, hey, everyone knows there's this extra presence. And everyone knows that when you have the extra presence, you have power. And so Satan wants to get rid of that presence. So there's things you can do that would hinder this presence so that you would lose this power. It is spoken of as a dogmatic assertion. Please note, now this is what I want you to notice. In the introduction Not one scripture is cited. Not one scripture is even referred to, even to back up this basic thesis. It's just asserted. Now let's go through the things that supposedly hinders 
this extra presence. The first one, if you remember, was secret sin hinders the presence. Secret sin hinders the presence. Guess what? It starts off, this is so interesting, with a quote by uh, Gene Easley. All right. When there's no communion with God, our lives are spent in darkness. We see nothing. We hear nothing. We have no answer. Spiritual death sets in. No scripture is quoted in the first, in the first paragraph under this first point. So the introductory paragraph, no scripture. And the first paragraph under the first point, secret sin hinders his presence. No scripture is cited, but Gene easily is quoted. Then underneath that, it says, most of us can relate to spiritual death, but be encouraged. Repentance opens the door for his presence to be restored. Begin by acknowledging and turning from sin that is pulling you down and you'll find rest for your soul. Acts 13, 19 says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's the only scripture quoted. Now, please note, the point was secret sin hinders this extra presence. They've given no scripture to even support the extra presence idea. And they don't even give a scripture that says, hey, if you have a secret sin, you lose the extra presence. And if you lose the extra presence, you lose the power. And if you lose the power, then you can't overcome the extra sin or the, uh, the uh, you can't overcome the secret sin. No scripture is even cited to even try to prove any of that. It's just asserted. Once again, within the Christian world, here's an idea. Hey, everyone, there's an extra presence. Amen. Secret sin will hinder it. Oh, no. No scripture is cited. And then the one scripture that's cited has nothing to do with what they're even talking about. Then remember number two. The fullness of the flesh hinders his presence. Now it quotes Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. It is impossible to be full of the world and full of Christ. Now, that is a scripture. It doesn't say anything about getting rid of this extra presence. And if you really read Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, which seems to say that we're all in trouble because you're telling me most Christians don't serve two masters? And of course, that's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is law. Okay, well, we'll go back to our series on law and gospel. They quote 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where Paul says he disciplined his body and brought it under control so that his work would not be hindered. But it doesn't, none of this says anything about losing the presence. None of the scriptures cited here has anything to do that if you do this, you're going to lose the presence or you're going to hinder the presence. Not, not, these scriptures don't say anything to that at all to that, but they're referenced. But none of these make any of the point that they supposedly make. Next, a lack of desperation will hinder the presence. A lack of desperation. This one, the, all they quote is, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5, 16. Does, that doesn't have any, no, I'm sorry. A lack of desperation, they don't quote one verse. A lack of desperation hinders his presence. They don't even cite a verse. They don't even attempt to. They just make the claim. Hey, if you're not desperate enough, then I'm sorry, you, you, you're going to lose the extra presence. That, that don't offer anything. Number four, a lack of fervency will hinder his presence. The best they quote here is James 5, uh, 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man of much. That doesn't say anything that if you don't have 
fervency, you lose the presence. It doesn't say anything like that. That quote, Hebrews 11, 6, where uh, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. None of that has any, none of that says anything that this hinders the presence. So they, again, they just make the claim with no, nothing. This is just being asserted. And, and, and you, I know you don't believe me, but you would be shocked to find if we, if, how many pastors or Sunday school teachers or small group leaders saw this article and turned it into a lesson. All right, here we go. Today, we come to the fifth and final one to bring this to a conclusion. But what I want you to see again is that they have not offered one scripture to support the extra presence idea, and they've not given us one scripture of what causes us to lose that extra presence. Not one scripture to even that has anything to say about anything being asserted in this article. There are scriptures being cited, which may give you the illusion that, well, this is scriptural, but there's no actual scripture saying anything that they're talking about. Here we go. The fifth thing that will supposedly hinder this extra presence in your life, right? God's extra presence in your life. Here we go. Being too busy hinders his presence. So you you get this extra presence, but if you get too busy, boom, it's gone. Like God's like, okay, I'm giving you this extra presence. I'm going to be there in an extra way. Now you're going to have power. You're going to have all this wonderful. Oh, wait, wait, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? No, 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 no. You're getting too busy. You're cleaning the house too much. You're watching too much TV. No, no, where, where are you going? You're running the kids here. You're do- no, 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 you're too busy. I'm sorry, I got to leave. I got to leave. It's like Jesus is like, well, you're just too busy. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Now, the minute he leaves, you lose the extra presence. You lose the extra presence. You lose the power. And if you lose the power, I don't know how you're supposed to overcome then all of your sins and all of your struggles. It's very, 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 very confusing how this is supposed to work. This is what they have to say. If you're too busy to wait, too preoccupied to pursue God, and and too wrapped up to worship him, your relationship with him will be hindered. He acts for the one who waits for him. And then they make they, they show a reference of Isaiah 64.4. Now, Isaiah 64.4. Isaiah 64.4. Let's turn there. Isaiah 64.4. Here's Isaiah. No, I'm in Jeremiah. Here's Isaiah 64.4. Isaiah 64, 4, for the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for them that waiteth for him. So this is a verse about what God has prepared for those who wait for him. I guess waiting is to be contrasted with busyness. If you're busy, then you're not waiting on God. Is this meaning being busy in the things of God? but not waiting for God? Or is this about being busy in the things of life? I'm not sure. Let's read this again. If you're too busy to wait, too preoccupied to pursue God and too wrapped up to worship him, your relationship relationship with him will be hindered. He acts for the one who waits for him and waiting can't be rushed. So I don't know if this busyness is busyness in the things of the world or busyness in the things of God, 
but then they say you're too preoccupied to pursue God and you're not worshiping God. So I don't know exactly what, which, what, how we're not waiting, but they go on to say, waiting is a great way to measure importance. We wait for the things that are important to us. Jesus often waited to hear from the Father and went to places of solitude to wait. Yes, waiting is difficult, but we can also rest in the fact God is in control. Andrew Murray, I told you this is all based on the book Absolute Surrender, often is, uh, offers a great perspective. Once faith has taken its stand on God's word and the name of Jesus and has yielded itself to the leading of the spirit to seek only God's will and honor it in prayer, you need not be discouraged by delay. Just because God is delaying something doesn't necessarily mean that he is denying it. And that's the end of that. Well, it's kind of the end of that point. Then we just have the concluding paragraph. Now, I'm going to just tell you something. I have no idea what any of that has to do with the basic themis the basic thesis of this article, which is there is an extra presence and you can lose it. This is, I guess you can lose it if you don't wait. <laughs> I, I don't know. You just have to wait. So I, I don't, what am I waiting for? If I already have God's extra presence, what am I waiting for? Th- this is, I, I, I can't believe this even shows up on a, ma- a major Christian website. Because this article is other, utterly convoluted, and I don't even know what this has to do. We've been told we get the extra presence, but we can lose it. And the way we lose it is by not waiting. But what are we waiting for? We've already been given it. So I don't know what I'm supposed to be waiting for. <laughs> I don't know. And then they say this, feelings can't be trusted. We must come to the point where we say, Jesus You're a priority, and I'm going to pursue you regardless of how I feel. But always remember, pursuing his presence doesn't always mean feeling his presence. So we're supposed to wait, but we're supposed to pursue. So literally, they go from a a paragraph about, hey, you better wait. And then the very next paragraph is, hey, you better pursue. I don't, am I waiting or am I pursuing? Or am I waiting? Is that how I pursue? I don't really know because they're not explaining anything. Are you standing on God's word with a humble, broken, repentant heart? Are you willing to yield to the direction of the spirit? Are you actively engaged in dealing with the things that hinder his presence in your life? Then don't be discouraged by feelings. When things get tough, rest in God's sovereignty. He is our stability in unstable times. I have literally no idea what any of that means. <laughs> that, that may be the greatest example of words that literally have no meaning. It's just spiritual sounding nonsense. It's it's just clouds without rain. It's just it's it's all shadow with no substance. It's just There's just nothing there. It's just vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. But trust me, there's people who read that was like, oh, this is so good. And you're like, what What was so good about it? And they couldn't even explain because there's nothing good about any of this. Basically, there's an extra presence that requires absolute surrender. But Satan is going to try to take away this extra presence. And how he's going to take it away 
supposedly, if I, I, I don't know how Satan actually gets involved in this, but Satan is involved in it. But if there's any secret sin in my life, now I, there's always sin in my life, and I don't tell everyone every sin. So that means everyone has some secret sin, right? I mean, do you confess every sin, every everything? I, I doubt you do. So I, so I don't know exactly what that means. Number two, the fullness of the flesh hinders his presence. What do you mean the fullness of the flesh? The flesh is very much alive and real in your life and my life, right? Okay. And then number three, um, a lack of desperation. Are you desperate enough for God? Number four, a lack of fervency. Are you fervent enough? And then number five, being too busy hinders, but it sounds like if you're too busy, it hinders. So instead of being busy, you're supposed to be waiting but while you're waiting, you're supposed to be pursuing because if you're not pursuing, you're not, I, I don't even understand. And that's the end of the article. It is, I, I'm just going to, I don't know what else to say. I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read some of the comments under this because it's so confusing. All right. Uh, I'm just going to read some of this uh, that I just, I don't really understand this. Um, okay, hang on. The once again, the Christian Post article, and they, it always refreshes, and then it p- pops up some crazy video that I have no desire to watch. I'm just going to read some of the comments under this to see if the people here have any better idea. Um, this is what one person wrote. I can't say I know what the author was thinking. <laughs> I know I can't either because I don't think anybody does, right? But he probably had fellowship with God in mind. So in other words, everyone is just as baffled as I. What does he mean? Like presence? But clearly he's describing an extra presence that we get. Now, I think a lot of people don't understand what he's saying because you'd have to go read the book Absolute Surrender by Andrew Murray, where the author of this article did not was not just forthcoming and saying, hey, I, I've been reading Andrew Murray's uh, Absolute Surrender. But let's see what this person goes on to say. Therefore, five things that hinder the presence of Christ is not whether the Spirit of Christ is there or not there, but whether fellowship has been broken or restored. For example, consider a husband and wife. Let's say the husband forgets their anniversary and the wife is not too pleased about it. That night when they go to bed, they're only a few inches apart, but their hearts can be miles apart. However, let's say the husband didn't really forget about the anniversary, and when the wife opens the front door, some of the gifts who are hiding pop out to surprise her, and her husband gives her a big anniversary gift. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Clean clean your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy uh, to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So basically, what this commenter takes away from it is, hey, guys, do the right thing. Stop being bad. And then you can have right fellowship. Christianity is just a never ending. This is, this is the message of Christianity, basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Do the right thing. Stop doing the bad thing. Do more of the good thing. Stop doing the bad. Do more. Stop. Do. Stop. Do. Stop. The, the, the message of Christianity is not Christ has done it for us. It's we need to do this. And we need to, and we're always in danger. We're going to lose his fellowship. We're going to lose his presence. We're going to lose this. Well, we may not be saved. We, and it's just, I, I don't, I don't get it. There's no hope or peace or rest ever. We're always, it's a never ending Run faster, lift more weights, do more push-ups, do more, do more, do more, do more, do more. It's just maddening. Another person wrote, if God's presence could be hindered by his creation, then he wouldn't be God. Oh, now listen to this one. This author eats, sleeps, and breathes the law. Grace never factors into anything he says or does. It's all about us or him. Someone else saw the same thing I did. This is all law, law. Do, 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 do. And then, but see this, now the one thing this person is missing is my, 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 see, now this time I feel like I've done good detective work, all right? Typically I think my listeners do better research than I do, but this comment right here proves they don't get it. This author believes in an extra kind of presence. There's the omnipresence, the special presence, the internal and dwelling presence, and the surrendered presence or the extra presence. So he's right. God's presence can't be hindered by us, right? But, but, but he's talking about the, the author of this article is talking about the surrendered or extra presence. So, which obviously many of the, uh, the, people reading it didn't understand. They go on to say here. Um, so it's no secret why the enemy of our soul wants to hinder his presence with power in our life. Now he's quoting from the article and they go on uh, to say this. This is an unfortunate use of language. It implies Jesus, the creator of the universe and possessing all authority in heaven and earth is impotently hindered and has power stymied by a mere creature of his. If the sense of his presence is missing in a believer's life, it is by Jesus' sovereign choice, not by some creature, uh, creature's behavior hindering him. That sounds good. Then he immediately gets what someone quoted. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And they say, why does Paul tell the Thessalonians to not quench the spirit? Now that, may be something we will need to work on. What does it mean to quench the spirit? What does that mean? Someone replied, good question. Whatever it is, it's not overcoming of the power of a sovereign God to do as he wills. Now, amen, I completely agree there. Someone else wrote, hindering the presence is a bit different to the fact that he is abiding with us always and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. Maybe she, maybe, and they named the, the author, uh, maybe he is thinking of being filled with the Spirit. It is not permanently, but we need to be refilled often. Now, this is the idea that we have to constantly be filled, filled, filled. Now, this, I always get nervous because when we talk about being filled with the Spirit and that it's not a constant thing that we, like we have the Spirit and then we can lose it and we need to be refilled, that seems to reduce the Spirit to me, not to a person, but to a uh, um, almost like a substance and we either have less of it or we have more of it. 
So, so that is, I think, somewhat confusing in the minds of lots of Christians. Whether we sense him or not, uh, whether we sense him or not, he is there, keeping covenant with us. And in dry times we may feel him, but he. Oh, in dry times we may not feel him, but he is ever present. If we stay and go walking in the flesh as we often do at times, quite obviously we're not going to feel his joy and pleasure of his fellowship with him. He'll make sure that there is no sense of his presence for the person's rebellious activities. We need to repent quick, smart, and ask him for forgiveness for our soulish uh, willfulness. However, nothing will hinder God from being omnipresent, and we will achieve what he has determined. But during our but during our straying, we hardened to spiritual sensitivities. In brokenness and repentance, sorrow, he draws near and heals. Now, once again, they don't seem to understand that the author has this, this multi-concept of God's presence, omnipresent, special presence, indwelling presence, and then a surrendered or extra presence. None of the uh, emailers or none of the commenters here has figured this out in any way, shape, or form, and I can understand why it's confusing. And then the last point, this comment doesn't address the main point of the piece. I just glanced at it while doing something else. Despite the the cursory nature of my the cursory nature of my reading, my eyes fell on this sentence. When Ezra and Esther fasted and cried out to God, they were desperate. The author seems to know something that the Bible doesn't. The book of Esther has no reference to prayer or God at all. I note the only point I note this only to point out how often our interpretation of scripture displaces the text itself. Oh, that's good. From the article, it says, when Ezra and Esther fasted and cried out to God, they were desperate. And then this person points out, the author seems to know something the Bible doesn't. The book of Esther has no reference to prayer or God at all. And they say, I note this only to point out how often our interpretation of the scripture displaces the text itself. How often our interpretation displaces the text itself. That comment is more profound than the entire article because the entire article is someone just giving their idea, their hypothesis, their thesis as if it's scriptural and in real and in most cases it's displacing the text itself. So when it comes to any idea, the presence of God or or any concept that that Christians are talking about at any given time, how much of what they're talking about is nothing more than their own made up theory, hypothesis, or interpretation, and they have literally replaced the text with it. Let me read this again. How often our interpretation of the scriptures displaces the text itself. That is what I want to leave you with. And this series, and I think at least for maybe for the month of January, you're going to hear me give that quote frequently. I'm going to quote that frequently probably for the next couple of weeks. 
How often does our interpretation displaces the text itself? I think maybe we could clean this up a little bit. How often do we replace the text with our interpretation? How often do we place our interpretation where the text should be. We just take the text and we're like, nope, my interpretation. And what we, and so we're not actually looking at the text. We just see our interpretation, read our interpretation, and share our interpretation. And the text has been thrown in the trash can. It's almost like I have a Bible right here. And I just look over. I'm like, oh, Mark's, Mark 16. I rip it out of my Bible. And I put my interpretation. And that's what I read from, the, from that point forward. How often do we replace the text with our interpretation? How often does our interpretation displace or push out the text itself? All of this discussion about the presence of God and we can lose it and, and, and all, all, this extra presence, all of that is just pure someone's imagination. It's made up and they, they remove. We listen to a sermon today from Jesse DePlantis, where he took Isaiah 9-6 and he put his interpretation there and made Isaiah 9-6 not about Christ, but about us. And he literally said that we, we can say that we are wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. We can say that about ourselves. That was in a sermon. We just reviewed it a little while ago. You can go listen to that message. That's someone literally taking their interpretation and replacing the text with it. Now, how often have you done it? How often have I done it? If, if, If you go back and listen at the beginning of this series, when we were reviewing the message from Adrian Rogers, he, he was replacing Exodus, the passages in Exodus, I think three and four or whatever, four and five, whatever chapters he was in. He literally replaced Exodus with his own interpretation How often does our interpretation uh, basically displace the text itself or we remove the text and we place our interpretation in the place of the text? You can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And there is the very anticlimactic conclusion of this series. But we've been left with a rather profound point. I would love to get your thoughts on that point. So email them to me or talk about it in the Discord channel, right? Because at the Discord channel, we have a lot of interesting conversations going on right now. And uh, there's a lot always happening in the Discord channel. If you uh, are a listener and you would like to be a part of the Discord channel, email me. I send you, you need to download the Discord app for your phone. I send you a link. You can come immediately into the server. Just know the Discord channel is not there necessarily for you to to put forth. (laughs) Like if you have an agenda, it's there to have conversations with us about, yes, what we're talking on the podcast, but about other things. As long as you're engaging in a conversation. We had someone come in and it felt like that they... I guess, I don't know what they were doing. They were, they were posting random images and not really engaging in conversation. And some of it felt very QAnon-like and they didn't really seem to want to, I don't think they were even listeners of the actual podcast. But if you're there to actually engage in conversation, you'll find the people in the Discord channel are really 
good at having good conversations about doctrine and theology. So if that's something you would like, email me, newsif at yahoo.com. I send you a link, and then you're in, and you can check it out, and you can, well, get rid of it whenever you want. All right, there you go, because I'm hoping this leads to a good conversation as well. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a wonderful day. I will be back. I don't know. We're going to do more live broadcasting today, I think. But for now, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.